As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set up to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. Christ is risen, Christos Nessi. So last week, we talked about chapter 9 of St. Luke's account of the Gospel, where we saw the 12 sent out, and Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So in doing that, we see a narrative shift, and that narrative shift in St. Luke's Gospel is that along the way for the preceding chapters, we're going to be aiming towards the Passion. We're going to be aiming towards Jerusalem. So Jesus isn't going to be dilly-dallying. He's not going to be going from place to place any longer. There's going to be an emphasis on ministry, and there's also going to be an emphasis on parables that we will see playing out in the coming chapters. So with all of that out of the way, we're going to see here, the beginning of chapter 10, a new ministry begin, and that being the ministry of the 70 or 72, depending on the manuscript that's being used. So, verse 1. After the Lord appointed seventy others, and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to come, and he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace is there, your peace shall rest upon him. But if not, it shall return to you, and remain in the same house, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wage. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a, house, a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So what we see here within the first 12 verses of this chapter 
is the ministry of the 70 or 72, as I mentioned, uh, depending on the manuscripts. And the reason why it's kind of vague whether or not 70 or 72 is because the system of numerals that we think of isn't something that was used in the Greek alphabet. So these numbers are represented by words, and you have the same issue with the Septuagint as the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Regardless of that fact, the number 70 or 72 is significant because it ties us back to these various places in the Old Testament. And as we've talked about with numbers in the past, well, when specific numbers are being used, well, that is, again, cluing us into prior usages within the scriptures. It's a hyperlink, if you will, telling you various sections that you can look back to. But we're going to focus here on the ministry, and the ministry that we see here of, we'll say, the 70 for sake of argument here or sake of discussion, is very similar to what we saw in the prior chapter with the ministry of the 12 apostles, the ones who were sent out. We see that these 70 are sent out ahead of Jesus, so they're sent out in front of Jesus to prepare his way. It's very, very similar ministry to the ministry of John, who was sent out to prepare us for the coming of the Messianic kingdom. And they're sent out two by two, because a Christian alone is no Christian at all. For two or more are gathered in my name, as Christ tells us, there I will be also. So as they're going two by two, what they're doing as they enter into each town is they're making Christ's presence manifest. And we see this call in verse 2 highlighted. Because Christ laments, he says, that the harvest, <clears throat> the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Christ is the Lord of the harvest. He is sending out his laborers. Because it's not enough for him to go from town to town. It's not enough for the twelve alone to go out into town to town. We are all called to make Christ manifest in the world. So we're all called to go from place to place and reveal his presence to those who do not know him. And what will this require? Well, similarly to the twelve, similarly to how Jesus has been conducting his ministry, he tells them, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. So what he's saying here is that you are called in this ministry, possibly, to a life of poverty, or at least a life that is not centered in the things of this world. And that's why he says, bring no sandals, bring no purse. You're not bringing these excess things that you could center yourself in. Because the idea here is that we're centering ourselves in Christ. We're embodying Christ's words and characteristics. So when we're doing that, well, we can't have these things that would pull us away from that reality in the mix. Because there's this very specific mission that we're called to. And he says the same thing when it comes to entering the homes of those who welcome you in. You're not looking for status. You're not looking from place to place of better provisions and better housing. Rather, you're given what you need. You're given what's needed in that moment. 
But if you're constantly looking around for a better opportunity, if you're constantly looking around for something that you would perceive as being a better lodging, we'll say, well, you're missing the point and the point of this ministry, the point that each of every one of us is called to in the life of Christ is to allow for his love to be made manifest in the world. But you can't do that if you're hung up on yourself. You can't do that if you're hung up on, we'll say, the things of this world. The only way that we can truly do that is if we align our will fully with God's will. So as we've seen in all of these repentance narratives that happen within St. Luke's Gospel account, well, the first thing that people do before repenting or healing takes place is they fall down before Jesus. And as we mentioned, that's symbolic. Because in falling down in front of him, they're prostrating themselves. They're showing themselves to be lower than him. And that's a sign of humility. That's a sign of saying, I am willing to learn from you and be a student of you. So when that takes place, well, then true repentance happens. Because it's from that humbled state, it's from that self-emptying and that self-lowering, that the individual is able to gain a broader perspective of what they're being called to do in that moment. So it's the same symbol that we're seeing here laid out for how the 70 are to conduct themselves. It's the same symbol that each and every one of us see and are called to embody in how we conduct ourselves in the world. We're called to strip ourselves down from all of the things that hold us away from being able to perceive the will of the Lord and align our will with his will. So that way, through that constant repentance, through that constant reorientation, well, then we're able to do what we see the 70 doing here. They're bringing peace as they go. And what's the source of that peace? Well, the source of that peace is the peace of God. It's the peace of knowing that the messianic kingdom is here proclaiming the gospel, which will soon be proclaimed throughout all the world, as we'll see in Acts, when the church spreads proclaiming Christ's resurrection and the possibility of being eternal participants in that resurrection to the world. And it's for that reason that if you're invited into a home, as we see here in verse 7, remain there. Why? Because you're becoming a part of that community, you're becoming a part of that household. So you'll remain in that household, eating and drinking with them for whatever they provide you. Because again, you're not some dignitary. You're not some elevated person in this context. Rather, you are a laborer. And as we see here in the tail end of verse 7, the laborer will receive their wages. So if you are a laborer, if you are sent out to bring forth the harvest as Jesus is saying here, well then you're going to receive what you need because at the end of the day, you're doing the will of the Lord. But it's when we stress out about what we're supposed to do next. It's when we stress out about the things of this world. Well, that's when this becomes very difficult because we're not focused on the broader picture. We're not focused on what we're called to do as individuals in that context. Rather, what we're fixated on are the things that we think we need. 
but then that blinds us to the reality of what God is trying to show us. I can tell you time and time again in my life when I've thought that, well, this is supposed to be the plan. This is how things are supposed to go. And I've done nothing but aim single-mindedly at that goal. But what I've found time and time again is that when I do that, and I'm stubborn, I'll continue to do that, but when I continue to do this, well, I blind myself to all of the other things that were presenting themselves to me as options. I blind myself to all of the other callings, if you will, that God is trying to present in front of me. So that's what this exercise is. It's constantly not dying to the ego, but rather putting the ego in its proper context, in its proper place. It's reorienting the self. First by stripping yourself down so that way you can truly perceive what's going on around you. So getting that humble student-like position, but then continually practicing repentance, continually practicing this reorientation of your whole self. So that way with each and every time you do it, it gets a little bit easier is you continue this process of reorienting and you don't fall as far with each go because now you know, well, this is the best way for me to live my life. And you've embodied that, you've lived it because there's a very big difference between living that type of life where we're on track, we're doing what we're called to do and intellectualizing what we're supposed to do, hypothesizing where we're supposed to be going speaking about where we're supposed to be going. These things don't really matter until we put the rubber to the road in a sense, because we can, as we're going to see a little bit later, we can know intellectually what it means to love. But if we don't actually conduct those self-sacrificial actions of offering ourselves for the other in the same way that Christ offers himself for us, well then we're a clinging symbol or we're a no reason gong, as St. Paul will say. There's no substance behind our words or our thoughts. Yet what do we see in verse 9? We see that these 70 will heal the sick and they will proclaim that the kingdom has come near. So again, this is that call of each and every one of us as Christians the powers of the coming kingdom will be made manifest. Because again, we're not healing of our own authority. We're not healing of our own powers. These mighty works of God are not happening by our hands, but rather they're happening through God, through his power, which is revealed in our presence when we have aligned our will fully with the will of the Lord. And that's why whenever you enter a town, we see in verse 10, and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. So what's happening there? This seems like a very harsh proclamation. Well, this is symbolic in a sense. It's symbolic in that from separating the dust from the feet of the disciples, what we're seeing is a cut, a separation, if you will, between that place and them. And the reason for this is because there's a rejection that's taking place. And what's being rejected ultimately? 
what's being rejected isn't the individual who's coming into that town, rather the gospel is what is being rejected. And that's why at the very end of the section in verse 12, we see, I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day for Sodom than for that town. So Sodom, if we think all the way back to Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah, is used as this archetypal evil city. And yet Jesus is saying here that it would be more tolerable for Sodom, this archetypal evil city from the Old Testament perspective, than the town that rejects Jesus, rejects the gospel. And the reason for that is because salvation has been presented to these people. Salvation has been revealed. They didn't have this revelation back in the days of Abraham. In fact, they had this in shadows. You see, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you see within the kings and the prophets of old, they're trying to describe what is now made manifest with Jesus, the Messiah, coming. There are all of these hints, there are all of these guesses as to who the Messiah is and what his role will be. But it's not fully grasped what that means until Christ comes and offers his life for the life of the world. And so, in the world, words of Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility in a sense. If you know the gospel, if you know what it is that we're called to do, well then you don't have an excuse anymore in a sense. Where before, when humanity didn't know, when we didn't have the gospel presented to us, the resurrection of Christ, the good news, well then you had an excuse. But this is also a mercy because in Christ making the gospel manifest, the messianic kingdom being proclaimed, that means that we all have the opportunity of salvation. Universally, all human beings have this opportunity. It's no longer tied to an ethnicity or a faith group. It is all who live a life in Christ. And yet, we also have to realize that we can separate ourselves from that reality. And when that's done, well, how does that play out? Well, it plays out as even the dust of that region being separated from God. But that's not because of some condemnation. That's not because a people group is looking at another people group and saying, oh, we really don't like those guys, so we're going to separate ourselves from them. Rather, this separation is done by the individual. And it's represented as in a city here. But we need to understand and embody this in our own lives. Because when we are the ones who reject the gospel, when we are the ones who reject what's being offered to us, well then, we are the ones who are putting that separation between us and God. And that's what's playing out here. And that separation is there not because God is, again, being vengeful and vindictive, but it's because we know what we're being offered and then we're choosing to reject it. It's for that reason that would be more tolerable for Sodom than that town in that age. Because they know better. And we as Christians, hypothetically, can say the same. But that's why we're called constantly to practice repentance. And that's why we're called constantly to set the bar just a little bit higher and strive towards it. 
because we always fall short. That's just human nature. But we always have the possibility of reorienting, repenting, and getting back on that track. So we can't look at this and say, this is a final judgment right here. We can't say that, okay, because a Christian walks into a town and is rejected in the name of Christ and cuts off <laughs> the distance between them and that city, well, that means that that city's condemned, period. Because the peace of God has still been bestowed on that city. The knowledge of the kingdom is still there. And the hope is that within time, that can maturate and that can grow. And that's what you see in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, you see an utter rejection of Christianity that leads to mass martyrdom. But then fast forward 300 years, and what happens? The Roman Empire becomes, over time, a Christian empire. So even though there's that initial rejection, with this consistent expression of the peace of God, we see a transformation, a transfiguration that takes place. So moving on to verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sodom than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he rejects me rejects him who sent me. So here we see after Jesus has sent out the seventy, he proclaims a series of woes. And these woes are for the various cities that he's been entering. Because these cities, as we mentioned prior, have seen the mighty works that have been done by God. They've seen the, the revelation of the Messianic age. And he does, again, this comparison between wicked cities of the Old Testament, which he says would have repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes, which was this symbol of repentance that you see throughout the Old Testament. It's stripping down to this simple garment and bathing yourself in ashes because from dust we were created and to dust we will return. This is an external representation of repentance. And yet we see here in this example, again, these wicked cities which the people sitting here and reading this or hearing this would understand as just being bad places, period, because they're roughly familiar with the Torah. Well, Christ says they would repent. Why? Because they were not given the gospel. They were not given this revelation of the Messianic age. And that's why he says in the judgment it will be more tolerable for them. And he says the same thing for Capernaum, another one of these cities that he's gone to. He says, will you exalt yourself to heaven? So will you hold yourself in this lofty esteem? Will you think yourself to be superior? No, that, that won't be the case, because you'll be brought down to Hades. So what does that mean? Well, that means that if you're exalting yourself and holding yourself up as superior, and yet you have Christ right in front of you doing all of these mighty works. 
but you think yourself to be the religious leader of the day. You think yourself to be wiser than him. Well, what's the reality going to be? You're going to be brought down to this lowly place. And what's the lowest place you can think of? Well, Hades, the land of the dead, the underground. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying for these cities that elevate themselves and think themselves to be the pinnacle of reality, well, in all actuality, they're revealing themselves to be brought down, to be low places. It's for this reason in verse 16, he says, He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if we are rejected, and we are truly living the lives of Christians, well then, who is being rejected? Well, Christ is the one who is being rejected. But we see in Christ's ministry, time and time again, this revelation of the Trinitarian God. He's constantly pointing back to the Father. He's humbling himself in the same way that we are called to humble ourselves. He's not going around and saying that he's doing these things in his own power. Rather, he's doing it in the power of the Spirit, or he's directing us constantly towards the Father. This is important because as we're going to see a little bit further, and as we've been talking about time and time again throughout this Bible study, Trinitarian theology isn't something that just pops up in the third century because a bunch of people sit down and decide, okay, we need this to explain things. It's in the scriptures. It's embodied here. Because Christ has come in the power of the Spirit. And it's through the Spirit that he and the Father are communing. The Father has sent the Son into the world. The Son is the incarnate person of the Holy, of the Holy Trinity. All of these facts of our dogma, of our theology, are here in the scriptures. And that's why I think it's important for us to continue to highlight that reality as we walk through. But all of that's to say, we are called to humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord. We are called to lower ourselves, and we are called to align our will with his will. Otherwise, if we exalt ourselves, if we hold ourselves as, up as being these high beings... Well, the reality that we're going to see is we're going to be brought low. Because the true way that we're elevated is by participation in the will of the Father, in the will of God. But if we're not conducting that participation, if we're not humbling ourselves in the same way that Christ humbles himself, well then, we're going to be revealed to be like these cities that elevate themselves over the will of the Lord. We'll be like Capernaum. And rather than actually being exalted to heaven, will be revealed to be brought down to Hades. So moving on to verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So after the 70 return, we see them rejoicing that Lord Christ, even the demons, that is the spirits, the gods, with a lowercase g, of nations, are subject to us in your name. So they're showing that Christ is something more than 
just a prophet. They're showing here that Jesus, the Christ, is something greater than was, was expected. He is truly God because God is the Lord of the spirits. So if the spirits, the demons, are subject to the 70, to the disciples, in Jesus' name, well, then we're seeing that there's some pretty profound power happening there, and that power is the power of God. And to this, what does Jesus say? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So what he's saying here is that, again, he is God. Because who else would be able to see this event of Satan falling like lightning from heaven? We need to understand that these events aren't historical events in the way that we look at the world. There isn't a specific point in time where if you were looking up at the sky, you'd be like, oh, look, there's Satan falling like lightning from heaven. These are, this is speaking of spiritual matters. Because the fall of the angels, well, we can't nail down exactly from a historical perspective where that takes place. Because God and the spirits are outside of time and yet interact within linear time. So what's important here? What are we actually seeing? Well, we're seeing that the spirits, as represented in Satan, the fallen angels, well, they have fallen. And we need to ask ourselves, okay, what was their role? Well, their role is to be ministers. Their role is to animate the world around us and ultimately lead it back towards the Creator. And yet we see that some of them have rejected this and rather want to be gods in themselves. But the problem is, where does life actually lie? It doesn't lie within these animating principles. It doesn't lie within these individual spirits because they're part of the whole. They're not the whole in themselves. The whole is God. That's why we're talking time and time again about living this life in Christ, this life in the will of the Lord, because it's through living a life devoted towards his will that fulfillment truly takes place. But these spirits that have fallen, that have rejected that will, all they do is isolate. Because when we worship them, when we fixate on them, well, they're not leading anywhere. They lead towards themselves, and over time, that will lead to isolation. Over time, that will lead us further and further away from God and one another. And all that is left there is destruction, even though these spirits were called to be ministers. These spirits were called to lead us towards God. Yet what we see here is that, yes, these spirits, these evil powers, are subject to the 70, they're subject to us in God's name. But what Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what he's saying here is we're not meant to rejoice that we have authority in his name over these powers of the world. Rather, we're to rejoice over the fact that we are now called to replace these powers. We are called to carry out that same ministry. 
And in doing so, we are the ones who will animate and reorient the creation towards God. We are the ones that will make his power, as we see in the healings that happen with the 70s, manifest in the world. His love manifests in the world. This was the role of the angels. Yet certain ones rejected this role, rejected this calling. And yet we are elevated in Christ to still carry out this calling, to replace them in a sense, because they have rejected what they were offered. But let's not fall into the temptation of rejecting that as well, because that is the purpose of these evil spirits. That is the purpose and the main drive of these demons. It's to divide us. It's to separate us. It's to tempt us and ultimately lead us away from a source of life. Because they think that their pride or themselves are so much greater than the service that will lead us towards eternity. So we need to deviate from that tempting. We need to deviate from this adversarial relationship between us and God. Because when you see Satan, the adversary, the adversary of humanity, come into the mix, well, what does he do? Well, he's trying to lead us away from eternity. He's trying to lead us away from God. But in doing that, oftentimes we fixate on ourselves. We look inward, not in a helpful way where we're unpacking certain things about ourselves, but rather we fixate on various aspects of ourselves. And when we do so, well, what's happening? All that's happening is we're getting stuck. We're getting stuck in some type of a loop or some type of pattern. Because when we're stuck on ourselves, we don't see the life that actually lies in relating to others. And in fact, we're incapable of relating to others in those moments because we're so fixated on whatever is going on, we'll say internally, that again, we can't see what's going on around us. We can't see what God is calling us to do. And that's the importance of service. That's the importance of the self-emptying. It allows for us to carry out this role of being ministers of Christ. Because the minute that we set aside all of our worldly cares, even if those are internal worldly cares, well then we're able to proceed forward. We're able to do what we were created to do. So moving on to verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son has chosen to reveal himself. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So what we see is after all of these things take place in this hour, Christ rejoices in the Holy Spirit. 
So again, we see this third person of the Holy Trinity. And through rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, he's communing with the Father, and he thanks the Father and says, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. So what does this mean? Well, this means that those who have exalted themselves, the haughty, the wise, the understanding by this age, are not the ones who are receiving the gospel. In fact, they're seeing themselves as being greater than it in a sense. Yet who are the people who are receiving this gospel message? Well, they're the lowly. He compares them to babies. They're the apostles. Because if you, again, remember the jobs of the apostles before they were called, they were simple laborers. They were fishermen. They weren't lawyers, so they weren't studiers of the law. They weren't doctors. Some of the disciples are, as we see with John writing this account. Yet in the beginning, who is called? Well, the humble are the ones who are called. The humbled are the ones who make this manifest. And again, this isn't saying that people who have educations are bad people. But this motif of comparing those who are elevated to those who are lowly shows us what we are truly called towards, because we're all called, in a sense, towards this lowliness. Because as we've mentioned multiple times in this session, it's from that layer, that level, rather, of humility that we're then able to begin this process of repenting, this process of aligning our will with the will of God. And we see here that Christ says, Ye Father, for such was your gracious will, so we see that this is the will of the Lord. This is the will of God, that we humble ourselves, that way we can align our will with his will. And we see here in verse 22, the relation between the Father and the Son. Because all things have been delivered to him, as the Son, from the Father. So everything proceeds from the Father, through the Spirit, to the Son. Because again, as we saw, Christ is communing with the Father. He's participating in this loving, self-sacrificial relationship through the Spirit. He is a distinct person that's participating in this relationship. He's not a specific power or entity that's separate from the Father or the Son. Because that couldn't be the case. They wouldn't have this perfect relationship, as St. Basil will say, this perfect interrelation, if the three were in any way divided. And yet it's self-sacrificial love that binds the three as one. So no one knows the Son except for the Father. Why? Because the Son is begotten by the Father, he's, but he's also one in essence with the Father. He's not a creature of the Father. Rather, he was the one who in the beginning brought all into creation. So this is the relationship between the two. And in the name, Son, we know that there's a Father. There's, there's no Son without there being a Father. And here we see, Christ says, and no one knows the Father except the Son. But how is it that we know the Father? Well, Christ builds upon this further. And he says that anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. We know the Father through the Son. We participate 
in the will of the Father through being co-workers with the Son. When we live a life in Christ, we are living a life in God. This is how God has revealed himself to us, through the person of the Son. And we know God through our relationship with Christ. It's for this reason that, in verse 23, he turns to his disciples privately. So he now isn't in front of the multitude, he isn't in front of the crowd, he's just in front of his disciples. And he says to them, Blessed are the eyes which see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So as I mentioned earlier, before Christ comes, everything's revealed through a shadow. The prophets are trying to discern what it is they're experiencing, this, this grasp of God, this grasp of an experience of God, rather, that they're having. But it isn't until the Son is made manifest, it isn't until Christ comes, that we can fully grasp what this reality means. And even then, we can't grasp the totality of what this reality is. But now we know the path towards salvation, and it's through life in the Son. Because it's through this life in the Son, through this participation in the guiding power of the Spirit, that we are ultimately led towards the loving embrace of the Father. As I mentioned earlier, Trinitarian theology is here, is laid out very plainly. So whenever people have these debates of, well, you know, this was written at some council by a bunch of bishops who came together at a certain point in time, well, they're not informed as to what's going on in the scriptures. Because we've mentioned time and time again, as we've been walking through Luke, these examples of Trinitarian theology being revealed very plainly to us. And the reason why this is important is because it shows us how we relate to God. It shows us how we live a life in Him. Because if we don't know the Son, then we can't know the Father. If we don't know the Son, then we can't be guided by the Spirit. If we don't humble ourselves as the Son humbled Himself, then we can't live a life in the will of the Father. All of this is important. All of this is interrelated. And yet, it's through our practice of humility, it's through our practice of self-emptying in the same way that God empties himself in becoming a human being, that this reality has continued to be revealed to us. So moving on to verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. Do this and you will live. So what we see here in verse 25 is a lawyer, so a studier of the law, a doctor of the law, stands up and desires to put Jesus to the test. So what we see here in the first verse is that he has an intent in what he is about to ask Jesus. And that intent is to test him, to show himself as being superior in some way to Jesus. 
So he asks him a very simple yet targeted question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, instead of giving in to his temptation, asks him, okay, you're a lawyer. You study the law. How do you read it? And so this man pridefully answers with the Shema, that is a, a part of the morning and night prayer of the Jewish people. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says to him, you have answered right, do this and you will live. But what we're going to see here, moving on, when we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan, is that this man doesn't fully grasp what this means. He understands intellectually what it means to live a good life. He understands intellectually what it means to do what God has created all of us to do. But through this parable, what we're going to see is that it's not enough to understand in thought or word what we're called to do, but rather we need to actually conduct those actions. We need to actually show love. So moving on to verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So this man, this lawyer, desiring again to test Jesus and justify himself and his thoughts and his actions, says to him, Lord, who is my neighbor? Expecting for him to say, well, your kinsfolk, your fellow Jews. And so instead of answering the question directly, Jesus teaches him through a parable. And Jesus replies that there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So we can assume this is a Jewish man. He's leaving Jerusalem and he's going down to Jericho. And as he's on the way, he's assaulted by robbers. And these robbers strip him of his clothes, they take all of his goods away from him, and they beat him and they leave him half dead. So now this man is in a ditch, he's half dead, and the only way that he'll be able to make it is if somebody comes along and aids him, if someone comes along and brings him from that ditch. And now we see, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he sees him, he passes by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite does the same thing. So these are two Jews. And in fact, 
these aren't only Jews. Well, these are Jews of the religious authority. So the priest and the Levite are called to make sacrifice. They're called to serve in the temple. Hypothetically speaking, they're supposed to be the exalted ones, the ones who you would think would minister first to this person. And yet, what do they do? They pass on by. And it's easy for us to judge them and say, oh, how could they possibly do this? They must be evil people. But we need to ask ourselves, well, what does the law prescribe? Because this Levite and this priest are more similar to the lawyer that Jesus is talking to than we might think. Because in the same way that the lawyer has just told Jesus, okay, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and understands this intellectually. Well, the priest and the Levite understand that if I touch a dead body, which this man might be, or may soon be, well, then I'm ritually unclean. I'm ritually impure. And then I won't be able to conduct what sacrifices I'm called to conduct. I won't be able to enter the temple. So in their minds, they're justified. And logically, they're holding to the law. Because again, the law is commanding them not to touch impure things. So a dead body or blood, that's totally off the table. Because if they come into contact with a dead body, well, then they need to practice some ritual acts of purity that will not allow for them to conduct the sacrifices that they are supposed to be conducting. Yet what do we see here? Well, we see after these two fellow Jews, these two kinsmen pass this man by, who comes? Well, it's a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were seen as the lowest of the low because they're Yahweh believers. So they believe in God, and yet they are not fully ethnically Jewish, and yet they still believe in the similar God. They still believe that they are practicing, not Judaism, but this belief in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so the Jews, the people who have the temple in Jerusalem, and this practice of offering sacrifices within said temple, see these people as worse than even the pagans because they claim to be Yahweh believers, and yet they're not conducting sacrifices in the same way that the children of Israel are. And yet what we see here, well, Jesus says that the Samaritan, this lowest of low, is journeying on, and when he comes to this man and sees him, he has compassion on him, and he goes up to him and binds up his wounds. He pours on oil and wine, so he anoints him with what would be medicine in that day, and he sets him on his own beast. So he brings him up and sets him on his beast of burden to bring him to an inn. And when he brings him to this inn, he takes care of him and leaves him with the provisions needed for him to be continued to be cared for. And so when Jesus questions this lawyer and says, which of these do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, when the lawyer comes to the realization that is the one that showed mercy on him, he is showing that he has had a change of mind in a sense. He is showing that he's come to this conclusion himself, a realization that he is not truly living the way that he's called to live.
Because again, what he stated earlier when he put Jesus to the test was correct. But you can be right and wrong at the same time. I think in life we find that time and time again. And here's a context where that is the case. Because this lawyer is right. He knows what is required of us. We're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love each other. But he doesn't fully grasp what that love looks like or how to embody that. But here, where he says that the one who showed mercy on him is the one who did what God was calling him to do, well, then Jesus ends the section by saying, you are now called to do likewise. So it's not enough to have these things intellectually. We need to actually embody them. We need to actually carry them out. This is how we make the self-sacrificial love of God manifest in the world. It's by treating one another, regardless of who they are, as if they were our neighbor, as if they were our family, because we are all one in Christ. And when we refuse to do that, we miss the mark. We may understand that, yes, we're called intellectually to love and serve one another, but we don't fully grasp what that looks like. So it's our call to be Christ-like. It's our call to lower ourselves in service. So that way, in serving others, we may be able to make manifest the true joy that comes out of life in Christ in their life, shining light into their darkness. Moving on to the final section of this week's gospel, of this week's chapter, rather. We go to verse 38. Now as they went their way, he entered the village, and a woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. So we see as Jesus is going on his way with his disciples, they comes to a village. And when he enters that village, a woman named Martha receives him into her house. So to add context to this, Jesus is not the only one who's coming into this woman's house. All of Jesus' disciples and followers who have been coming with him, the multitude that is, are also coming into this woman's house. So when she receives them, the ministry isn't just hanging out with Jesus and 12 other people and giving them dinner. Like She's actually ministering to a multitude of people. This is a very tall ask, if you ask me. And what we see is that she has a sister, Mary, who's well, they're sitting at table, well, Jesus is preaching in their home, is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. And we have Martha, who again has welcomed Jesus and the disciples into her home, which, as we know from the gospel according to St. John, is Lazarus's home. We see that Martha is distracted with much serving. So she's getting flustered. She's getting overwhelmed. She's doing something good because we're all called to serve. And yet it's becoming too much for her. And so she goes and says to Jesus, 
Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And yet we see in Jesus' response, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. Oftentimes, I think we read this passage and we see an adversarial relationship between Martha and Mary. We say, okay, well, if Mary chose the good portion, then Martha must have chosen that one. But that's not the case at all here. Because again, we're all called the minister. We're all called to serve. But if I was to highlight a negative aspect of what's going on here for Martha, it's that she's becoming flustered. She's becoming concerned with how it is that she's going to be able to minister to all of these people. And so we could say justifiably so. She says to Jesus, Lord, tell my sister to stop hanging out over here. Come and help me because we need to do this right now. But in Jesus' response, he highlights her anxiety. He tells her not to be troubled and anxious about these many things. He's not saying that what she is doing is bad, because again, we need to understand the context of the scriptures, the gospel. Christ has been calling and sending out his disciples to minister to others and asking for others to receive them and minister to them in like manner. So why would he all of a sudden be sitting here and saying, hey, no, this is bad now? Well, it, it wouldn't make sense. But what he's saying is that Mary has also chosen the good portion. She's humbled herself at the feet of the master. She's taking this posture of a student. And Mary, like Martha, when the time is right, will be called to minister and to serve in the same way. So what we see here is as Christians, we're called to have this balance. And that balance is between understanding what it is that we are called to do and what it is that we think we need to do. Yes, we are called to serve. And yes, we can also think that we're constantly supposed to serve. Yet, if we don't separate our desires from the desires of the Lord, from the, the will of the Lord, well then, everything gets muddy here. We can miss the mark very easily. And so... With the comparison of Martha and Mary, we don't see an example of how to serve well and how to poorly serve, or how to be a good student and how to fail at being a student altogether. But rather, we see what we're called to do as Christians. We are called to serve, but we're not called to worry about how we're going to serve. Rather, we're called to, in love, make this offering. In the same vein, we're called to humble ourselves. We're called to learn from the Lord so that way we can do what he is calling us to do. Both are needful. It's for this reason that for feast days of the Theotokos, we read this passage because it's painting this image not only of what we are called to do as individuals, but what she had done in her ministry. Remember the Theotokos humbles herself, but she also acts. She humbles herself by allowing for God to dwell in her. But she also goes out immediately afterwards and presents that revelation to her cousin Elizabeth. 
it's important for us to realize this because the saints are our role models. The Theotokos is our role model. And what they are modeling is how we are called to live a life in Christ. So if we humble ourselves, if we live as they live through their example, well, then these things will be made manifest. But if we run away from these things and try to live for ourselves and separate ourselves from God, well, then we become like the evil spirits. We become like demons who desire to live a life in themselves rather than a life in eternity. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study. Make his path straight. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Christos Nesti, Christ is risen. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible Study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.